I think Kenny Rogers said it best, that you can't outrun the long arm of the law. The law comes into effect a lot when you deal with investment real estate. It is sometimes meant to protect you, but is often meant to protect the rest of the world from you. Either way, you have to know your way around the laws that pertain to you the most. And that's what we're discussing today, the law. We'll share our stories about our sordid run-ins with the law and talk to a real estate investment attorney about how we keep our nose clean and our rights protected. We are talking law on this episode of Flipping Awesome Podcast. Welcome to Flipping Awesome Podcast. Every week we share some of our experiences around a topic. We also talk to an expert or entrepreneur to share their story. This week's topic is real estate investment and the law. I'm your co-host, Heather Foss, and I'm a licensed real estate agent in Minnesota with Remax Results. And with me, as always, is my producer and co-host, Marshall Saunders. Hey, Marshall. Hi, Heather. How's it going? Not too bad. The law uh, and Kenny Rogers. I love I love that. Yeah, reference. well, you know, no <laughs> podcast can go wrong if it starts with a quote from Kenny Rogers. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And, you know, I'd, I'd really like to take a special moment to welcome our listeners it's been really fun over these uh, first uh, few episodes here to see how many people are subscribing on Apple Podcasts. We're getting a lot of listenership. It's really, really fun to watch that grow. Uh, I'd like to ask everyone who hasn't already to check out our webpage, FlippingAwesomePodcast.com, and like our page on Facebook by searching Flipping Awesome Podcast. And please hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast source you found us on and please, please rate and review Flipping Awesome Podcast. So, Heather, how have you come in contact with the law in relation to work in real estate investment? I would say our closest uh, run-in with the law came a few years ago when we were working with a general contractor on a flip. Mm. We got into a little bit of trouble negotiating a change order with this contractor. Um, he ended up putting a lien on the property, preventing us from being able to sell it, which was our, our goal. So we ended up going to arbitration with the contractor, hiring an attorney to help us negotiate this change order down. It was expensive and time-consuming. Emotionally, it was it was tough. You know, it was me and my husband. We had a good guy, bad guy situation with the contractor. And when we got to the point where we needed an attorney and an arbitrator to kind of help us work through this problem with the contractor, you know, it caused, it, it caused some rough uh, times with me and my husband. Sure. So, Because um, you came to it from different points of view and the dynamic was different. Yeah. With this contractor between the two of you, right? Yeah. I mean, when when things get bad like this, you know, you there's a lot of shoulda, coulda, wouldas mm -hmm. that are thrown around. You're spending a lot of money. Obviously, the lien was putting stress on the deal as a whole anyways. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got this extra financial burden of going to arbitration right. and defending your actions and trying to move forward. Well, let's talk a second about arbitration. Arbitration is something, did you agree to it before you ever went into relationship with that contractor? So this was a part of the contract that we signed. Is sure. There was a binding arbitration clause in his contract. So we were obligated to do this. Which is not all bad. A lot of people like arbitration. A lot of people don't. So it's kind of a 50-50 sort of deal. Uh, but 
usually that's something where where you decide up front, hey, if we get into trouble with each other, if we have a difference of opinion, uh, we'll agree to arbitrate rather than going to court. Arbitration is always an option. Right. So whether you agree to it up front or not, you can always do it. However, that requires both parties to agree to arbitration. Right, right. And it may not be the cheapest option. Right. Um, but we got an arbitrator who was familiar with the construction process. So it was a little bit easier to talk to this person and, and kind of put together a story of like what was going on versus a judge who who may not have much of a contracting background. Right. Um, so that made it a little bit better in the end for us. Sometimes arbitration is sold as, well, you don't need a lawyer or it's cheaper or it's quicker. It can very well be quicker. Um, sometimes you can get that done in a month or so, right. whereas the court uh, process can take a little bit longer. However, I have not seen it necessarily save you a lot of money. You still need to go to a great attorney yep. who knows the arbitration process, can help you put together the uh, argument to best serve you. Like you said, the positives are you might get an arbitrator that really knows your business, that really understands construction, that really uh, can take a, a great deal of time. A lot of courtroom situations, especially if it's small claims court, yep. they're seeing hundreds of cases that day. They want to get you in and out and taken care of. That judge, or sometimes they're called referees in small claims court, they might not know a lot about your particular topic. Also, in the courtroom situation, you have the right of appeal. You can appeal it and appeal it and appeal it. It doesn't happen a lot because it's very expensive. Right. Most right. oftentimes people don't appeal. But arbitration, that's binding arbitration. Whatever that person decided, yep. whether they used the right information or not, I think a lot of rehabbers that I've dealt with that are a little bit more um, slipshod, you know, they're just out there, they're doing things quick, they're buying, selling, blah, blah, blah. Yep. They sometimes feel like they don't really know the law and they don't need to and kind of they feel like if they don't know it, they don't have to adhere to it. Yeah. You know, that old saying that ignorance of the law is no excuse. That is absolutely true. Anyone who goes into real estate investing, whether it's have and hold, whether it's flipping, rehabbing, what have you, you need to know the basics of the laws that apply to you. Even if you have a good attorney, you need to know at least the basics of the uh, national, state, and local laws that apply to you. But having said that, invest in a good attorney. Totally. It's it's worth the money. It's I know it seems so hard when you're just starting out and those bills can be large and you're having a 15-minute phone conversation and it costs you a lot of money. Right. But investing in a good lawyer who knows the law about what you're doing is so worth it. Hand in hand with that, I always say make sure that you're properly insured too. It helps That's you nice. in the legal process and it, to make sure that you are insured for anything that could go wrong is really helpful. Right. Yeah. Real estate attorneys can be beneficial in the offense and the defense. Right. Um, yeah. We, we talked to our rehabbers establishing uh, – a partnership, a legal partnership, and and laying out expectations and exit plans ahead of time. Mm -hmm. While things are good, people are excited, 
are a lot cheaper to do versus like waiting until things go bad. Right. You know, the the job or the flip turns turns bad and we have to figure out a different exit agreement and uh, people have different ideas. It's a lot harder to negotiate when when people are mad and you've right. got all these emotions and financials wrapped up into it. Things are good until they're not, you know, and uh, spend the money up front. Get get your expectations laid out on a, on a documents on all parties agreeing and and then move forward. You know, another thing are LLCs and partnerships and corporations. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, don't be a sole proprietor, no matter what. Don't be a sole proprietorship. Uh, start some sort of corporation, start some sort of LLC, and make sure, you know, you do that with the advice of a good attorney. Don't try to circumvent the process. A lot of people start an LLC, but they start it in just name only, and they're just like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm an LLC. Right. Make sure that you have all the corporate formalities done, uh, bylaws, appoint directors and officers, even if it's just you in, in, in all those positions. Yeah. You need to go through that process and then operating agreements. You need to have all that in place when you start something up. Those are corporate formalities. You're truly setting up a corporation because sometimes if you don't take the time to do that, people say, oh, you were just a corporation in name only. But you never went through the formality of truly making this a corporation. Therefore, we're not going to honor that corporation and the structure and the uh, liability that it takes off you. Now, setting up an LLC is no get-out-of-jail-free card. You can get still get sued. You, uh, you know things can come back to personally haunt you, um, but it does allow you uh, some layers of legal protection and liability protection. Yeah, you see, you were mentioning that you see a lot of rehabbers who will set up a separate LLC for each property, um, often using the address to identify the LLC. Right. Um, like 1414 Taylor LLC. Yeah, right. exactly, exactly. And and that's all pretty easy if you're paying cash for a property. It's a, it becomes a little bit more challenging if you're financing a property right. to, to have that veil over and that protection for you because a lot of underwriters don't know who 1414 Taylor right. is. And so, you know, there's a um, most of them will expect some kind of personal guarantee or your name on the top of that uh, contract. I have always set up my uh, rentals. I, I do a lot of single-family home rentals. Mm. I always have the ownership in the name of the LLC. So it's 1414 Taylor LLC named after the property. And I do a private registration with the state. So the state knows who I am, yep. and they can get in touch with me. But as far as the public goes, they don't know who the owner of that LLC is. So the people living in my homes, they don't know who I am. Gotcha. They don't know who I am personally. So when they got a problem with, you know, how I'm handling their uh, utilities, or um, they want to make a case that they don't need to pay their rent this month, they don't show up at my door, or they don't call my cell phone. They call the name of the property management company that I hire. Right. They let them know what they want to say. The property management company contacts me. We talk it out. And then the property management company carries out my wishes. Gotcha. Is that a, like a, an extra cost 
when you're setting up that LLC? Generally speaking, uh, but it, I think it's like twenty five bucks. It, it's really oh, it's really yeah. minor, and and of course, this is not a, a big high brick wall that you can hide behind. Sure. But this is not like some hermetically sealed secret <laughs> that can never be revealed. Totally. It just. You know, someone going online and stuff like that, they're not going to know who the owner is. It also saves me from a ton of unsolicited uh, sales people. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. It protects you from that upset tenant, right. you know, on a Saturday night right. making tweets or something like that. Well, and, yeah. they, and they can, yeah, they, they go on to Yelp and they yeah. give you a bad review or they besmirch your reputation online. Another horrible thing that you need a lawyer for is evictions. Oh, yeah. And evicting people, I don't care how bad they are, how much they've hurt your property and how much they haven't paid you, mm-hmm. it is tough to evict people. It is really a bad situation. And it's uh, something that, boy, you got to have your legal uh, ducks in a row. You have to work with a lawyer and you also have to work with a property management company if you use them. Right. Because it's very important that all of your actions are uniform and how you treat this tenant is the same as how you treat that tenant and all that sort of stuff because you could be opening yourself up to liability if anyone's treated differently. Right. I always use the example of if you're going to evict somebody on July 25th, you got to be ready to evict somebody on December 25th. Yep. So you're throwing them and their family and little kids out on the street on Christmas Day. Being and treating everybody the same, documenting things and following the laws and having representation is is your best efforts to, to be successful when it comes to evictions. The first thing that anyone involved in real estate investing should understand is that you need to have a great team around you. Real estate lawyers, lenders, inspectors, tradespeople of all sorts but first and foremost, the real estate agent. Marshall and I have an elaborate real estate network at our fingertips of agents who put their customer first and truly know the best plan to get you started in real estate investment in your area. If you'd like us to match you up with a great agent in your area, simply go to our website at flippingawesomepodcast.com and click on the experts link. Fill out the form and hit submit. We'll never sell your information. We will not spam you. We only want to use this information to connect you with the best possible real estate agent in your area. It's a great place to start. Heather, I recently sat down in our studio with Barry Rosenzweig. Barry is a renowned attorney and is versed in many areas of the law. He has a podcast called The Barry Law Podcast, where everything is legal. You can find that by going to barrylaw.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-L-A-W.com. And clicking on the podcast button. Barry was good enough to come in and talk to us about some basic legal concepts in relation to investment real estate. So, Barry, uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast... They're, they're looking to get into rehabbing um, or they're already in rehabbing a little bit. They're looking to grow or what have you. What are the biggest legal pitfalls that people should kind of keep in mind about 
rehabbing? Well, as far as rehabbing goes, we're talking about people fixing up properties to resell or keep for themselves. Right. Buying, you know, undervalued properties or properties that need a lot of fixing up and they buy them, fix them up either either to sell or to rent out. Well, I think the first thing people have to look at is what they're going to buy and finding the right property in the right neighborhood. That has a lot to do with really hunting things down, looking at things on the web, and actually working with a real estate agent is probably a really good idea. Okay. Um, because they usually will have insight as to what is available out there. Now, if you find something on your own, that's great too, but you actually may do just as well having a real estate agent because they're kind of doing the footwork for you. Mm-hmm. Should somebody get their own license? Does that make sense to go out and get your real estate license to do this? Actually, I would say just the opposite. Okay. When you have your license, you have to disclose a lot more about who you are, that you're licensed, that you're professional. You have to put it in the purchase agreement. That sometimes gives people a little uh, hesitancy to move forward because they think they may be more taken advantage because you're you know, mm-hmm. ex- the expert or have this information that you may not tell them about. Let's say I find a home and it's owned by you know, kind of whatever the uh, typical little old lady who has lived there forever, right? And I know that her house is worth like $110,000 on the open market, but she's willing to sell it to me for $80,000. Is there some obligation on my part to tell her that inform her that she's selling her house for well below market value? Is that going to get me into trouble legally if I don't inform her of that? Well, not unless you're taking advantage of her competency or her ability to make cognitive decisions on her own. Okay. Really, the price of something is determined based upon what somebody's willing to sell it for and what somebody's willing to buy it for. And market value is a little bit subjective. And market value really has to do with condition of the property, um, work that has to be done, property selling in the area. And sometimes it's hard to determine exactly what that is. And quite frankly, sometimes people can overpay in those situations as well, which really doesn't give you any outs if there's mm-hmm. you overpay. Mm-hmm. Really, it has to do with the purchase agreement and making sure the person on the other side who's selling is competent to do it, and then typically it will not come back to bite you. If, if that is a little old lady, should I ask her if there's anyone else that she wants involved? Perhaps a... a son or daughter or a nephew or niece or something like that that might oversee her financial dealings? I think it's probably a good idea. I mean, it's not required, but I think the more precautions you take, the less problems you'll have later on after the transaction. You could even potentially have her sign something, again, um, if she's competent to do so. And it's really hard to determine that Mm -hmm. on your own, that outlines the fact that you've informed her that of your situation, you're an investor, you're buying it to fix up, you're going to resell it. Um, and you can put that in the purchase agreement. And you could even put in there that she may want to seek the advice of an attorney mm-hmm. or possibly a real estate agent to help her through it. When I buy these properties for rehabbing, whether, whether to uh, sell or own uh, long term, should I be putting those all into a separate LLC or corporate structure? Is that is that wise? Is there really any rationale to doing that? Well, a couple of things. Let's just start from the beginning. When you buy a property, if you're paying cash, you have a little more discretion to do what you want as far as what entity you put, put it in. So mm-hmm. if you pay cash for a property, which a lot of people do on rehabs, mm-hmm. they will then, because they're 
sometimes it's hard to get the loans for them. What you'll do is you can put it right in the LLC name that you've had created, and then there's certain protections you get that you wouldn't get if you held it individually. If you're getting a loan, typically, with unless you tell the lender in advance that you want the LLC to take ownership of the property and be on, and be the obligor on the loan, then you may have some problems putting it into the LLC afterwards. Now, you also may have to sign a personal guarantee whether or not the LLC is on the mortgage and owns the property. Sure. If that is the case, owning it in an LLC is really no problem. If you buy it in your name as an individual and you have the mortgage in your name as an individual, after the fact, transferring it into an LLC will give you protections. However, a lot of lenders will frown upon it. Now, in the mortgage, almost all mortgages state you cannot transfer the property. Now, transferring the property would be the same as putting it in an LLC as no different than transferring it to another individual. Sure. And in the sense you can transfer it, but the mortgage could become due and payable. Right. Now, in reality, that rarely happens, but people should be aware of that. You don't want to put yourself in that uh, level of liability. And, and to answer your direct question about the LLC, ideally you want to put them in separate entities because you don't want to have them in a bundle of one LLC so that if something happens on one property, the other properties are at risk as far as the assets go. But sometimes that people don't like to do that because it's a little it's costly to put each one separately, but I look at it as more of an insurance policy. Now, you mentioned a couple of times in that conversation about the protections of or the protections provided by an LLC. And, you know, we don't need to get too because I'm sure it varies based on state and varies based on uh, the, the personal situation or the individual situation. But what what generally are some of the protections of having it in an LLC? Well, the biggest protection is if you're sued, you have, they, they would sue the LLC and not you individually. Okay. As far as the loan goes, you're still more than likely signing a personal guarantee, so it wouldn't protect you against any kind of loan foreclosure or mm. uh, deficiency on the loan. Um, it does give you added protection. I always tell people, first and foremost, make sure you have really good insurance. If you have really good insurance, and I say really good, doesn't necessarily mean the total amount. It means making sure your insurance agent is able to give you all sorts of different coverage, all kinds of protections that the tenants may you know, sue you for. Mm -hmm. I know this is uh, an odd question to put to a lawyer, but should I hire a lawyer when I when I buy a rehab property? I mean, is this something that I should really be doing every time and making sure that I have a lawyer involved with all of my documents and and overseeing the buying of the property? Um, do you think that's necessary or a good idea? Well, I think at least for the at the very least, the first one or two somebody's buying. Okay. Sure. And I also think people don't realize how reasonable for the value that you get mm -hmm. because it's not exorbitant the cost you're going to incur. Um, and if you get somebody who's experienced at it, they're going to be able to do it more efficiently and faster than somebody who isn't. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I always look at it as, again, sort of an insurance policy. The amount you pay will probably, in the, in the long run, be worth the money. Mm -hmm. um, I always tell people, if you have no problems and you've hired an attorney, money well spent. If you have problems and you have an attorney, money well spent. Exactly. It might be one of the reasons that you don't have problems. Right. right, right. <laughs> Regarding long-term real estate investments, what are the most common legal liabilities 
of those, you know, renting out a home, a duplex, uh, uh, multi-tenant housing. What are the most common legal troubles that people get in doing that? Well, I, I think the most important thing to start out with is a good, solid lease. Mm. People put things in the lease sometimes that when their landlords do where they don't know they shouldn't be putting them in, which could invalidate the entire lease. Oh, wow. There are certain uh, notice requirements. And if you go outside the notice requirements, it could become invalid. There are certain penalties if you put in there could invalidate the ability to evict them. There's things in there about the eviction process. If you don't put them in properly or have the proper addendum for it stating what it is, it can make the eviction even harder. So I think that's probably the first and foremost thing you should have is a good lease. And typically, once you have a good one, you can use it across the board. Another thing that people should do is contact or look at the city ordinances because some cities are really making things very strict on landlords as to what they can and can't do regardless of what's in the lease. And every city could be different. So I would check on those ordinances uh, with the city and potentially with the housing department. That's where you're able to check. In particular, Minneapolis is even talking about not being asked, uh, not being able to ask about criminal history. Correct. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, and and it, there's a time period in which you have to go back. So if it's over a certain amount of years, um, you can't basically tell them they can't rent from you for that reason. Mm. Whereas in the past, if they had a felony conviction, uh, regardless of when it was, you could say I can't. You know, I'm not going to rent to you. But now they have so somewhat of a grace period that allows them to not turn them away from a rental property for that particular reason. I think sometimes the thing you see is landlords do sort of a, uh, a soft um, rejection and they either don't tell the person why or they find reasons that are legal to do it. Um, you have to be careful on that because sometimes the tenant has the backing of associations and groups that can protect them and come after you and report you. And so sure. you have to be kind of careful about that. Yeah, right. There's tenants' rights organizations and correct. Uh, you know, different uh, organizations like that that could, they have their own legal staff and correct. could make your life and, a little And one of the difficult. thing is you can't really treat tenants differently. If you're going to do a background check on one, you have to do one on all of them. Right. So you have to treat them very much equal when it comes to even the lease, although there are some things you can add in there depending on their credit mm -hmm. and their... Right. It's consistency, right? Correct. If I did this, even if, like you said, if it's credit score, if your credit score is between this and this, this is what I always do. There's never an exception. It's always... This credit score is treated this way. This person is treated this way. It is always consistent. Isn't that oftentimes when you're in rental court or a landlord court? Yeah, uh, and housing court. Uh, housing it's court. called different place, different things right. in different jurisdictions. And whenever you're in there, they always go, well, this person had this, and they treated this person like this, and I didn't get this. I, I hear that argument all the time. Correct. One thing that will help prevent that and, and is really required um, and protects you is to have an outline of what your rental criteria is so that you can hand it to tenants before they sign an application, fill out an application, to make sure that they understand what your criteria is. They may say, well, if that's the case, I'm not going to do it, or would you make an exception for credit? And, you know, you can even put in there if, if necessary or you want to is um, co-signers, how you deal with that, mm -hmm. uh, credit scores, evictions. And, you know, the big word is eviction, right? Uh, eviction 
is probably the number one thing that keeps people out of doing multi-tenant housing and and owning and and for a long period of time uh, long-term real estate is because they don't want to evict people and um i once had a lawyer say that if you can't evict someone on christmas day <laughs> and, and you know throw a family out of the uh, rental house don't get into landlord because if the 25th is the last day that you have to be in that building, you have to enforce it whether it's Christmas or not. Have you been involved with any evictions and kind of have some firsthand knowledge of the, how that goes? Yes, personally and professionally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you want to avoid, now sometimes, many times it's unavoidable, but I think you really want to avoid um, doing eviction as much as possible. They're not super easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people do it themselves, and again, you may want an attorney to help you with the first or second one. Um, you may be able to work it yourself. It just depends on the the, the ability of the person who's doing it. Right. And you, there's a process. You have to file papers with the court. You have to file papers with the sheriff's department. They have to be served personally, not by you or anybody within your organization. Um, if they show up to court, then you ha- the judge determines where, you know, when you have to move out or the reconciliation of it. That Usually the judge or the, the um, referee, they call them, uh, will give the person a certain amount of time to move out, okay, or make good on the, sure. the, the amount out. So, and then if they don't, then you have to have the sheriff come over. The sheriff has to physically remove them. I mean, they don't pick yeah. them up and throw them out. Right. And then you, if they don't take their belongings with them, you have to actually store them right. for a particular period of time, take inventory of them, store them, and after a certain amount of time, if they don't claim them, then you can sell them or get rid of them. Hmm. So it's a pretty difficult process that really becomes a lot more work at that point. Now, I do advise people, sometimes you're better off paying them to leave. You know, and people think that's kind of a never thought of it or it's kind of a crazy thought. But sometimes you're going to be ahead of the game if you go to the tenant and say, you know what, I know things are tough and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to file an eviction notice and, you know, have you removed and all that. What if I give you X amount of money to move out by the end of the month? And a lot of times they'll take that because they, they can't get somewhere and they can't move somewhere. They don't have a, a deposit or down payment. The amount can be negotiated, but mm-hmm. I found that that can work. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're basically sure. making an agreement voluntarily to get get them out. Right. Now, a lot of times they won't, and a lot of times they just decide they're going to make it tougher. They don't have any place to go because they don't qualify. But that's just another idea. Sure. You are a lawyer that works in both the Twin Cities area of Minneapolis, St. Paul, but also in Scottsdale, correct? Correct. Uh, so how can someone get a hold of you here in the Twin Cities? They can call me at 952-920-1001. A lot of the things I do, I can do over the phone, sure. by email, by scan. Um, it works really well. I can get things done quite quickly that way. I'm always available to meet, um, but in this day and age, I can do a lot uh, via the Internet. Even if there's Arizona work that needs to be done, mm-hmm. I can do that from here. Sure. I'm down there occasionally in my office there, but I do work just as well f- from here. Right. I'd imagine you're in your uh, Scottsdale office more in January and February, <laughs> perhaps. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, sometimes, but it's, not, you know, it just depends on what I have going here family-wise right. and 
And what's your email address again? Barry at BarryLaw.com, B-A-R-R-Y at B-A-R-R-Y-L-A-W.com. And the website is BarryLaw.com. Correct. All right. Thanks a lot, Barry. Thank you. From Marshall and I, thank you for joining us on this episode of Flipping Awesome Podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question regarding any sort of real estate investment, call us at 612-352-9177. Again, that's 612-352-9177. Or just simply visit our website at flippingawesomepodcast.com. If you need to find a real estate expert that can help you find an investment property in your area, click on the experts link on our website. Also, visit our page on Facebook where you can find additional video content from our show. Flipping Awesome Podcast is produced and recorded in the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, who can be found online at mnpodcasting.com. Of course, any tax or legal advice given on this show is for educational purposes only, and you should always consult your tax or legal professional to receive advice about your specific situation. Also, we make no endorsements of any of our guests. They are asked in for an interview to share their perspectives, and that's exactly what they give, their perspective. The views and opinions they express are not necessarily those of me or Marshall or any company in which we are affiliated. Thanks again for joining us, and until next episode, we wish you a flipping awesome week.